From across the globe, from the center of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. Well, thank you. It's a it's an honor. It's a pleasure to be here and talk with you this evening. Um, it's such a this is a, a great society, a great theme, and uh, a great venue. So thanks for this opportunity. What I want to talk about is 787 flight test. I know this is the, for the simulation group, and my intent is to show how we use flight uh, use simulation as we led up to flight test, and then how flight test then updated our simulators, both the models we use for engineering development as well as the full flight training sims afterwards. So I think a flight test as being that link between the engineering development sims and the full flight training sims. So that's my objective tonight is to, to talk about that. So what I want to do is give you just an overview of the 8-7. I know you're familiar with the 787 in general, but just to give a little of a, of a baseline about what the airplane is all about. And then how we use the simulation leading up to first flight. And then I've got a few of the videos uh, to show you things that we do during flight tests and try to draw the picture of how that flight test ties back into the upgrading and updating of our sims and the, and the models that are used in those. So first, just to give you a little bit of a baseline, uh, I know you've, you're familiar with the 787. It's been in the news a lot over the last few years. That's both a good news and a bad news story at times. Uh, we had some technical challenges, but the airplane is outperforming. It's performing now. It's out in service. It's been flying with uh, in-service uh, airlines for about three years, the first version of the airplane, the, the Dash 8. The, um, that airplane first flew in, in uh, late 09. We have about 140 or more of those delivered now to 18 different customers around the world. The 787 is roughly a 767 sized airplane. Uh, for those not familiar, sometimes think it's uh, because there was so much hype when it was launched, it was going to be a, a big airplane, much bigger than that. But the intent is that it fits in the family of Boeing airplanes. So you have the 777, then the 47. Those are the large airplanes, much larger than than the 787. The 787 is roughly a 250 passenger airplane, if you think of it that way. It fits in the footprint of a 767, but it's designed for those long, thin routes around the world, direct uh, point to point between secondary markets. You can see the numbers up there. It's roughly an 8,000 mile nautical mile airplane with 250 passengers. We're just now finishing up the testing for the 787-9, the follow-on derivative, and that's about, it's about 20 feet longer two 10-foot plugs that are put in before, fore and aft of the wing. It carries about 40 more passengers and has actually slightly more range than the 787-8. So it's, a, it's a, going to be a phenomenal airplane, I think, great money maker for the airlines. And we're just now finishing up the testing, uh, expecting to get the, uh, the certification from the FAA any day now. We're literally that, that close. One of the big things I want to mention, what makes the 787 unique? Probably the biggest number one guideline when this airplane was still a clean sheet of paper was efficiency. We wanted to dramatically increase the efficiency of the airplane. You know, airline companies will spend tens of millions of dollars to, to improve 1% in terms of your, your drag reduction in your range or fuel efficiency. The engine companies will spend millions to, to change their engine efficiency by a tenth of a percent or sometimes a few hundreds. So to chase a 20% increase, that's a huge change. And it's a, kind of an evolutionary change in the way the airplane, uh, uh, almost revolutionary, the way we're trying to increase the capability of the airplane. We also wanted a better passenger experience. So both, both from the flight controls, just the, the ride quality, the environment in the, in the cabin, from the cabin altitude, the cabin uh, humidity, those types of things to make it uh, larger windows, a lot of those things to enhance the passenger experience. It's also because of a lot of those reasons, it becomes much more environmentally friendly, lower noise than uh, our previous airplanes. Noise is a huge uh, concern around the world, you know, and the airlines get penalized if they uh, trip off the noise alarms on approach and departures from different airlines, uh, different airports. So it's a big, uh, it was a big emphasis item for us. And reduce life cycle costs, reduce maintenance, reduce training, reduce spare parts out into the future. So. That was the general guideline on, those air, on the airplane, that we want it to be more efficient, we want it to be quieter, and how do we do that? So what is the specific technology? 
probably one of the big things that we did was almost everything you see there, the fuselage, the wings, the horizontal tail, vertical tail, the nacelles of the engine, a lot of that is carbon fiber. So to make that much of an airplane out of carbon fiber was a dramatic change in the way you build an airplane. It gave us huge weight savings, but it also does some other things. There's kind of a synergy of technology with this airplane. Various things contribute to other areas and actually intended. So in the case of the carbon fiber, an interesting point is that you know, one of the things that defines the lifetime of an airplane is the number of cycles it can go through. So if you think every time it takes off, it gets pumped up like a balloon you know, with a, a high pressure uh, high pressure for the pressurization of the cabin, and that can be up to nine PSI, nine, nine pounds per square inch, and there's a lot of square inches in that airplane. So every time it takes off, you get that high pressure, it lands. High pressure, and then it lands. So that defines how many cycles. That defines the lifetime of the airplane. But that higher pressure also can force humidity into various parts of the airplane that can be uh, hurt by uh, higher humidity and corrosive environments. What we found is that the carbon fiber is much more uh, tolerant to, humid, to humidity and it's much more tolerant to those cycles than the basic aluminum is. So therefore, we get better of the fatigue cycles on the airplane. We get reduced concern about corrosion. That allows us to lower the inspection intervals on the airplane. So there's a lot of benefits along that line. Uh, one other, uh, we, have, we call this the electric airplane because uh, things that used to be run by pneumatic air are now run electrically. Even the wheel brakes on the airplane, when you put on the brakes, there's little electric corkscrews that, that plug in, things that would be run by hydraulics in that case. There's little, little pistons there that apply the brakes. But the compressors for the pressurization system, in the, is, those are electrically driven compressors. Um, the heater blankets in the leading edge of the wing for de-icing the wing as opposed to hot air being blown through there. So we rely very heavily on electrical power. And, and we had to redesign those systems to accommodate that, uh, that technology. So another big area where we got efficiency was the engines. The Trent 1000 engine built by Rolls-Royce, built new for the 787, and the GE NX engine. Uh, the Gen X-1B built by GE. Those are our two engine manufacturers. They take no bleed air off of those engines. If you think about it, virtually every transport flying out there now has bleed air coming off the engines constantly. That air goes all over the airplane and the lowest area, the furthest area in one of that, the tubing and ducting has to have enough pressure continuously to operate. Therefore, that means way back up the engine, you're constantly drawing high pressure air off. For hours at cruise, you're drawing high pressure air off well, that's horsepower you're extracting from the engine. So we've chopped that. We no longer use that, and that dramatically drives up the efficiency of the engine. There's still some horsepower extraction because of the extra workload by the generators but for the extra load, but we can manage that much better, and we get better efficiencies for those long hours that you're at cruise. So that gives us much better efficiency as well. Great flight controls, highly augmented flight controls in all three axes. We do things to enhance the cruise performance once you're level up at altitude. We, if you maneuver the airplane very hard, you, there's things in the flight controls that will alleviate the loads on the wing. Uh, it's just a great flying airplane. There's protections built in there for going too fast, for going too slow installing the airplane. Uh, it's, a, it's a great flying airplane. We spend a lot of time uh, working on the flight controls. The flight deck is great. We started with it uh, with the basic concept that it would look just like a 777 flight deck. We wanted to minimize the training for a 777 crew to transition to this airplane. Part of the life cycle cost for airlines who wanted their pilots to fly both airplanes. You could, and we wanted to go for a common type rating where the regulator says if you're qualified in one, you can fly the other. And we were able to get that. And part of that was because of the design of the flight deck. You can walk in e either airplane and the switches, you do the same thing with the switches at the same time on every flight. So a lot of commonality there. So just briefly, now like, to get into the flight testing, we flew the Dash 8, uh, that was back in 2009. The Dash 9 just flew uh, early in, in the fall of 2013. The Dash 8 program took uh, about 20 months to get through the flight test program, much longer than we had anticipated. We got that certified in August of 2011, delivered the first airplane to ANA the following month. The Dash 9 is finishing up this month. That's the plan. We finished with all the certification flight testing. So all of the testing that we have to fly with the FAA on board to demonstrate the airplane, 
we have completed all of that. So now we're in the mode of submitting the reports, doing the final analysis, and doing the final discussions with the FAA and EASA to say, yes, we've, we've satisfied all the requirements of the regulations. And we're literally expecting to get the word any day now that the airplane has, has achieved its final type certification. And we're on track to deliver a little later this summer the first airplane to Air New Zealand, the uh, first customer, the launch customer for the Dash 9. So that, that gets us up to the start of the flight test programs. I, I want to just show you how we got there and how we relied on simulation because we had several different tools that we used. One very early in the program was this thing we called RAPIDS. It's a the rapid prototype development system. It was our way of putting together pieces of a flight deck so that we could start developing the interface, developing the symbology, developing the uh, way the systems talk to each other. And as the name implies, it is a uh, prototype development so we could sit there and change symbology real time, change colors, change interfaces, change the way uh, the switch actions trigger various events around the, the, the airplane. But it was a rudimentary flight deck. Even the overhead panel up here uh, is a touch screen for this purpose in the real airplane. It's, it's a hard screen with, I mean, uh, hard switches and, and buttons. This was a touch screen just for the sake of activating the systems and, and seeing the right indications on these uh, displays that we have. And we had a visual display of the large format, uh, uh, high definition uh, disc screens up there. One of our, our uh, probably most significant tools that we used in the development was this engineering cab. It's a simulator. We refer to it as the cab. It's a non-moving simulator. And our intent was to have a high, high fidelity simulator and try to use as much of the real hardware for the flight deck and the basic avionics as we could. So this is the cockpit. Everything you see there, that would be air, aircraft uh, flight-worthy software uh, displays and hardware with the seats, the, the panels overhead. We would use this for a lot of our evaluations. We, we're using it to this day for a lot of evaluations still. We can, we can put in the back door. We can put in the observer seats. Uh, we can have a, the flight, a real flight deck door there if we were trying to do handling quality, I mean, uh, trying to do lighting evaluations or human factors evaluations so we get the right uh, setup on there. The flight deck security access system, we can check that. But the primary thing is for us to have very, uh, uh, very highly robust system that simulates all the systems on the airplane and their interaction as well as the flight controls on the airplane. You can see it's kind of a wide open room. We use it a lot uh, for our flight test training and dry runs of flight tests. Many times we have to go practice maneuvers in the simulator before we go fly them as part of our risk reduction for flight tests. And we'll have the engineers who will be flying with us that are there in the room and monitoring the various parameters that they would be, be monitoring during the flight test. So part of our flight crew training and familiar, uh, familiarization. So a little bit of a cartoon on what that system, uh, the, the concept of this simulator, this ECAB. A lot of acronyms here, but I'm not, I, I don't want to uh, focus on those too much, but it's the concept I want to point out. We have the flight deck that you just saw. We have a lot of these systems. Uh, the, we call it the integrated surveillance system here. That's, that combines all of your weather radar and ground prox warning and transponder, the TCAS for uh, notifying you of other traffic around. That's one box we have on the airplane. The flight control electronics, and then the common data network, RDCs, that's the remote data concentrators. So here's the concept with this airplane. If you poke a button in the flight deck, there's a data concentrator that picks up that signal and says, hey, that button was poked. It sends that signal out on this common data network, the common data network, which sends the signal to the common core resources. That's your processors. And then it goes and tells the appropriate system, hey, turn on that pump or open a valve. And then that system will also then check to see that the valve got opened or the pump got turned on, send the signal back over the network, back into the displays in the flight deck. So the intent of that is as much of this hardware as possible will be in the simulator. So we have as much of the hardware as we can from the flight deck. We have, uh, for instance, the flight control electronics, the real boxes. These are flight-worthy boxes that go in the airplane. We have those right there in the cab. We're going through those real flight controls when we're, when we're flying the airplane. The uh, common core uh, resources here, these are general processing modules. They're just a whole stack of, uh, there's two of these uh, modules here, two of those racks, and that's just a series of uh, 
computers that have all the applications for controlling all the systems. So they all talk. That's where the integration of the systems occurs on this airplane. That's where the fuel system would be talking to the hydraulic system, uh, would be talking to the flight control system. So we have all of that real hardware. And then way downstream is where the simulation starts coming in. So some of the individual um, models for your, the models for a hydraulic pump or the model for an engine, we get down to that model level. And those are where we use models. But everything else, we try to use as much hardware as we can. Just to, uh, to kind of close the loop on that testing that we do, and, and we do try to bring the other hardware in the loop when we're testing. This is uh, another uh, resource that we have, the integrated test vehicle, and it's really the iron bird. So that hardware around the airplane, is this is where it gets tested in an integrated manner. There is a um, flight deck right back up in here where we can fly the airplane. We have real actuators here, real flight control surfaces, and they're loaded as if the aerodynamic loads on those surfaces with the real loads those those uh, surfaces would be seeing in flight. There's landing gear. There's the real generators that are being driven by a motor, but the real generators with the proper length of feeder cables that run to the various uh, power conversion pieces of the system. They run and power the, the high power compressors, high power pumps, hydro, uh, the hydraulic pumps, compressors for the airplane. So we get as much of the hardware in the loop there as we can. So that's kind of the ground resources that we use, the simulations leading up to the, to the airplane during the development and for flight test. One thing we don't usually spend a lot of time talking about is the in-flight simulation that we used in the program. And very early, this was in 2003 or so, as we were still designing the basic flight control laws, we were using this airplane. It's uh, operated by the CalSpan Corporation out of New York. Uh, it's an old conveyor that they converted. It's a variable stability airplane, but they call it the total in-flight simulator because they can have the, the complete environment in that big nose that they added in where you can have the right controls and the right displays, the right environment, as well as the, the flight control response. The main reason we were using it was because we were working hard to make sure that the lateral directional flight controls in our airplane were going to work properly and be robust. We felt that was one of our biggest technical challenges in the flight controls, the way those flight controls operate. So we wanted to test those up front so we could put those flight controls in this airplane. The, one of the unique things it has are these uh, vertical devices here on the wings, those fences out there, that allow it to create a side force on that. So basically an NY type of force on the airplane. And the airplane could then act as if it's seeing a crosswind on landing and that, that was one of the reasons that we were using this airplane because we wanted to make sure that our roll control and our uh, rudder control inputs were being were blending properly that we could carry those controls all the way through touchdown that we could blend them in as we take off blend them out as we touch down so we had a lot of uh, challenges and we wanted to this gave us an early look at uh, those flight controls Another airplane that we used uh, for in-flight simulation was this 777 that we leased back from American Airlines. So we took this 777 and put the 787 control laws into the flight control computers of the 777. And we could go up in air and fly a maneuver in one mode and then literally with the flip of a switch fly it in the other mode. So we could do a stall like a 777, flip a switch, do the stall in the 787 mode. We could do rolling maneuvers and uh, we'd do landings. We did very aggressive up and away maneuvering. One of our uh, final, we call it the graduation exercise, again because we were concerned about the lateral directional control laws and handling high crosswinds, we took it up to Cole Bay, Alaska and uh, found 40 knots of crosswind up there and validated that we could properly uh, use these controls to blend uh, all those, those various signals together. We did do some uh, up and away maneuvering. This is uh, this small display over here in the middle is, uh, we, call it, we called it putting, uh, putting the hot dog in a bun. That display was looked like a two horizontal lines, and then we had a flight director that were trying to match up those two horizontal lines. So we could program that director to, be, to have the right frequency components, to have the, the right frequency of reversals, the magnitude of reversals. So it was a way of ensuring, rather than just randomly putting in these roll uh, inputs up and away, that we were putting in, getting the right types of inputs for the sake of evaluating the stability of the flight controls.
we did that up and away as you saw there we also did down close to the runway we would fly over the runway at a couple of hundred feet and do these maneuvers aggressive maneuvers back and forth tracking the edges of the the runway getting more and more aggressive as we did those one of the uh i happen to have a, an air force background a couple of the guys i work with uh, have a navy background they used to like to show that video when we were back in that phase of the test program and they'd say that's that's how an air force pilot flies an instrument approach <laughs> one other uh, uh, in-flight simulator that we used this is another one of calspan's airplanes a variable stability learjet we used this not so much for um, development of the flight controls but it was more of preparing for the flight test program specifically preparing for PIO testing, lateral PIO testing. So pilot-induced oscillation, very aggressive inputs low to the ground. And we wanted to use this airplane to prepare the team for that. So we went up and flew this airplane. We could plug in different parameters to change the flight controls. So again, not to replicate the 8-7 control laws, but to give us the familiarity of, of understanding what happens if you, uh, if you change this feedback gain, what happens if you have a rate limit on the airplane so we would go up and do this the couple of the pilots got a chance to fly this and we typically have a couple of our flight test engineers in the back to see this testing so to give you an example this happens to be at grant county airport over in the central part of washington state an old air force base it's hard to see but that's the airplane there we come down to 300 and uh, well it's a 350 foot offset and then at 200 feet above the ground we make the correction over to the uh, to the runway so that was a very normal offset to come in and land, and the airplane performed just like we expected. Small inputs, uh, and the airplane was very re repeatable. Uh, the response was very predictable. So then we changed the, the flight controls to add in some extra delay and to put in a rate limiting so that now the surfaces are going to be moving as fast as they possibly can when you put in an input. We make the correction here. And when you have the, a rate limit on a surface, it's as if that, notice the large overbank, it takes a while for the airplane to respond once it gets basically saturated. Once that surface is, is moving at its rate limit, then it, the, it can do nothing more and it, there's a slight lag in there. So we, that's one of the examples of how we were using that airplane to become familiar with and understand better the implications of certain things in the flight controls and what's the real world impact on that. And just to close that piece of it out, that led us right up until recent testing. This is a Dash 9, a time-lapse photograph of one of our Dash 9s doing that exact same test, though. So even recently and throughout the program, that was one of the test techniques that we used. We did this maneuver with the FAA and the IASA pilots as they were certifying the airplane, but to show that we did not have the, the PIO susceptibility, uh, given all the processing that goes on in the, in the roll axis. Okay, I want to just talk a little bit more about the Dash 9 now, because that's the recent uh, work that's been going on in, in Seattle at Boeing Field. The, the first flight was back in uh, September of 2013. That's Mike Bryan, my uh, deputy, and who was the lead pilot for the Dash 9. I'd given him that job to handle all the details. But just a brief review of the first flight, because it had started off, it started a very um, uh, thorough but uh, a smooth test program. Uh, things went, went very smoothly throughout that. The first flight was intended to be about a five-hour flight. We wanted to do a lot of things, uh, basically flying straight and level, but evaluating stability in all the flight controls, um, every surface. So we spent some time doing that, as well as running uh, some of the tests that we would normally do on every airplane that flies as it comes out of the factory. We call it the production acceptance profile, turning off hydraulic pumps and electrical pumps and generators and checking out as much of that as we can. Uh, came back, uh, we did that over in eastern Washington. We came back, did our obligatory photo op around Mount Rainier, and landed at Boeing Field. So it was a good flight. This is always a test question if you can see both airplanes in the photo. That was the Dash 9, that's Mount Rainier, by the way, in the background. There's one of our T-33s. We had two T-33s chasing us that day uh, doing the photo work. So that's one of the photo airplanes taking a picture of us, taking a picture of the mountain. So I thought you might be interested to see what a, interested to see what a test airplane looks like. It, the flight deck is pretty close to a, a normal flight deck. There's a few things that are added in. There's a small display over here for each of the pilots where we can program in any number of parameters. 
various, whether it's angle, angle of attack or column position, uh, frequency components, a lot, of, a lot of different things. There's another panel right up here that can we can program in these panels to read out different, per, whatever parameter we want for the test, whether it's a um, the hottest break when we're doing braking testing or a lot of landings or if the angle of attack, a side slip, center gravity very accurately, all those kinds of things. But that's the normal flight deck of the 787, these large format displays. Um, electronic flight bag, both for both the captain and the first officer, where we can do all of our performance planning for takeoff, look at documents. All of our approach plates are right there, so that's a nice feature. The HUDs happen to be up in this photo. That's the heads-up display there, and one over here, both that's standard equipment for both pilots, but it's a lovely feature. One thing that's interesting in the flight test airplane, this is on the aft end of the aisle stand uh, between the two pilots. This box right here that we call the function switch box, that's a way we have of inserting signals direct to the flight controls. So we can turn off uh, overspeed protection or we can turn off stall protection. We can add uh, in different features into the flight controls. We can change the gain. So it's a way of modifying the flight controls and evaluating different features. We can also, with using this orange box going through the, the function switch box, this is a, basically a frequency generator. We can use that to develop different forcing functions and plug those directly into the surfaces. So they go down direct to the flight control computers and can put in various signals, uh, whether it's a sine wave, uh, uh, sawtooth waveforms, pulses, and in direct into whatever surface you so desire. And I've got a, a picture of that showing in a, in a minute, or one of the videos. This is what the interior is supposed to look like. I like to say this is what I got promised, and this is what they gave me. <laughs> the interior, obviously, that's one of the production airplanes. But I like to think, I figure some of our flight test engineers would like the idea of having a fully stocked bar on some of our test flights. They could go back there and take a break. This is what the interior looks like on a test airplane. These uh, large barrels here for the water, we have a whole set of those barrels at the aft end of the airplane as well. So if you think about it, we can go out for hours doing stalls. And when we do stalls, you're doing them at uh, just slightly forward of the forward limit of the center of gravity, or we're doing them just aft of the aft limit. So slightly outside of the published limit that we provide, that we certify the airplane for. And if you're doing hours and hours of stalls, you're burning a lot of gas. So then we can move that fuel around, move the water around, keep the center of gravity exactly where we want it for hours on end. And it uh, really helps the, the test efficiency. Uh, the displays, I mean, all the, the racks in the back, these are where engineers will sit. They'll be sitting back there while we're doing stalls and maneuvers and touch and goes, so they're having a fun time back there, I'm sure. One thing you can't see, I'll point this out in a minute, it's hard to see. Way back in the back is a big spool. I've got a photo of it. It's our tra trailing cone. It has a pneumatic tube that extends out of the top of the vertical tail, has a cone that's a couple hundred feet behind the airplane. It keeps it in much clearer air for the bulk of our maneuvers, so it becomes the truth data for our air data. So until we can certify the air data system, the speed and altitudes on the baseline production airplane, we have this other truth data source. Oh, one other thing, courtesy of our, the safety folks, you know, there's lots of rules. You can't see it, but right back in here is a box sitting on top of one of the racks. It's this box right here. That was a requirement for first flight. Mike and I kind of had to chuckle. We, we figured if one, there's only two people on the airplane on first flight, all the data's being delivered. So only, only two of us, we figured if one of us needs to use that on the other, we're having a pretty bad day. But, <laughs> but it's a requirement, so we were. Oh, here's that uh, trailing cone I was talking about. Once we get airborne, we hit a button and it unwinds to a couple hundred feet behind the airplane and, and trails. Uh, so let's just go to a video of the first flight. This is the 787-9 taking off. Uh, again, this was in September. It's taking off out of Everett, Everett uh, Payne Field. It's about 30 miles north of Seattle. That's where our, the main plant is, where we build the, all the wide bodies, the 777, 787, the 4767. Uh, uh, the airplanes are flown out of there. These test airplanes are flown out of Payne Field on its first flight, and they'll land at Boeing Field in downtown Seattle, and that's where we do the, the rest of the testing. We had two T-33s chasing us that day. They had taken off out of Boeing Field and then just orbited overhead till we were ready to go, called our brake release and joined up with us right on takeoff. So our intent was to fly for about five hours just to thoroughly check the airplane and hopefully start making some progress in this long test program we had ahead of, have ahead of us. 
and we were able to do that. Uh, quite a bit of the time was spent doing flight control checks. So all the various flight controls at various flap settings. So we wanted to check out all of uh, the flight controls as thoroughly as we could. There's that uh, production plant in the background. They say it's the world's largest building in volume, but uh, that's where we build all the wide bodies. We flew out over uh, eastern Washington. I've got another video of this segment in just a second. I want to point out a couple of things, but we spent a lot of time cruising straight and level and then putting in inputs and all, for all the flight control surfaces. And then we took a break to, from that. We would then check out, uh, cycle the landing gear a few times, uh, check out uh, doing thrust advances and decels on the engine, looking at the hydraulic pumps off and on, turning off generators, um, and then coming back to, uh, to ultimately land at Boeing Field. That's downtown Seattle in the background, Space Needle coming into view. The airplane pl flew very smoothly. We had flew for a little over five hours, had one day of inspections after, which is our normal amount of inspection time after the first flight of any airplane, even the, the certified airplanes coming out of the factory. And then it started flying again right after that. And it, uh, it flew very reliably throughout the, the flight test program. I'm gonna to go to one more video um, that shows a little up close the, uh, one of the flight control sweeps that we're putting in. So we've been cruising for a couple of minutes now putting in sweeps here. These are the electronic sweeps going in. What I wanna point out, this happens to be an aileron sweep. So we've inserted a, a, a waveform into the ailerons. You'll, you can see the aileron out on the left-hand side moving quite a bit. It starts at a very low frequency, like 20th of a hertz, and then works its way up to 20 hertz. So it's a full uh, sweep of this frequent of the the bandwidth for that that surface. It starts uh, moving uh, initially as it's moving very slowly. The airplane follows it fine. We're just doing a series of small banks as we fly along. The autopilot is off. We've got the airplane trimmed up. We're hands off, letting it respond as needed with this input. So if you notice that wing out there, at one point, now the wing starts moving a little more. It's being driven by that aileron, so it starts getting quite a bit more motion. The, both surfaces are moving here. These are asymmetric, of course, with the ailerons doing their, their normal thing. They're pretty active. We can feel that up front with a little bit of sideways motion as it excites the body. But uh, at, after that, it starts dampening out and becomes smooth again. If you were to look here closely, get past the cloud here, but the surface is still going out there. It's moving at a much higher frequency now. So it, it keeps going for another minute or so, and, but the wing is not moving, and we don't feel it in the flight deck. It's going so fast the wing can't respond. We feel a little bit of a, a rumble in the flight deck, but not a, the, the airplane itself is not moving. So what that, what that does is, highlights the concept of, the, of a bandwidth for the airplane, just a physical bandwidth for that structure. So you see where it can follow very easily. The, the response of the airplane follows very naturally the input. There's a point where it gets a much larger response, a resonant frequency, and then above that frequency it dampens out and draws. So we can, that helps define the model for that structure. And we do that in all three axes. This happens to be the, the flight deck view of Mike and I doing one of these uh, sweeps. This is an elevator sweep now. It's been running for about a minute. It runs fairly slowly. And then it'll hit a resonant frequency and we can get bounced around fairly well in the, in the flight deck. You can't hear Mike, but he's calling out the frequencies now, 3.4 hertz, 3.5 hertz. And then we get past that and it starts dampening out again. But we do that, and there's some secondary spikes here and there in frequencies. And we do that for uh, multiple, uh, all the surfaces, different frequencies, uh, different frequency ranges, and uh, at different speeds. One other portion of the flight test, I wanted to show you a couple of videos um, and relate it to how we directly update our, our models because this affects the ground, the ground effects. How do ground effects um, impact our simulators and the flight controls? So one of the things we do, we, throughout the program, we're collecting data for all, all of our auto land testing, our crosswind landing testing, but we do some dedicated testing to evaluate the ground effects and how that impacts the flight controls. And that's then directly fed back into our computer models and, and it's used in our simulators. So what I'm gonna show you is a video of a flyby and then a couple of uh, other uh, maneuvers where we go through the, um, 
through the ground effect and land the airplane. This is a flyby where we're coming in to land at a certain flap setting. We're fairly fast, right up against the flap speed limit. This happens to be at Edwards Air Force Base, by the way. Lots of flat desert around the uh, runway. And we'll get down to about 30 feet, I think, in this case, and stabilize there. We've cracked the throttles back a bit to start a deceleration, and then we just fly at that same altitude all the way down the runway, slowly decelerating as we go. So you'll see the flight path is going to remain the same. We'll stay at the same altitude. If you watch closely, the nose very slowly starts increasing. So the pitch is increasing. The flight path is staying the same. So angle of attack is slowly increasing as we do this. We'll go all the way down the runway with this until we get down to the minimum maneuvering speed and then add power and go around and come back and do it again. Do it at a different flap setting. And that gives us a range of angles of attack down there very firmly in the ground effect and we'll take a look at how that then affects the flight controls. There's another part of the ground effects testing that we do. Let me get rid of this one. Another part where we're intentionally driving through the, um, the ground effect and we call it a penetration through ground effect. So this again is at Edwards Air Force Base. We're doing this, it's a very shallow descent gradient uh, in the neighborhood of one degree or so. It's a 200 foot per minute descent rate. We're on the autopilot. It's, it's flying laterally the ILS localizer, so it's got very accurate guidance to bring us right down on the center line. But it's purely a vertical speed. It's gonna hold 200 feet per minute, 200 foot per minute descent rate all the way to touchdown. So this is not a, an auto land, it's just impacting the ground in, a, in that particular flight control mode. So it's driving it through the ground effect. And then as soon as we touch down, we'll disconnect the autopilot and then and, uh, roll out from there or sometimes do a touch and go and take off and come back around. I wanna give you another view of that. This is one of our pilots who, she took a uh, GoPro with her put it in the window for the um, flights, the work down at Edwards Air Force Base. You see why Edwards Air Force Base is where, it's, where it is. That, that was about seven miles worth of dry lake bed before you ever get to the runway. I've landed on that with a T-38 and F-16. These are markings for the uh, space shuttle. When it comes into land, it uses those as aim points. They use grease to mark these oil, actually, to actually mark out runways out on that big dry lake bed. There's lake bed runways out there six and seven miles long. But I don't think you have to be a pilot to realize this just looks low. You're barely coming in over the, you know, you're a couple hundred feet out at the middle of the, of the lake bed. So it's a very shallow descent gradient. We manage it very precisely. We, we have to know exactly where we want to be at all the points to give us this, this path. And you notice, Tracking the localizer, it line, lines you up just nicely on the center line of the runway and then lands, um, not very elegantly, but it will land and then we, we take over. So that's the a penetration through ground effect. One more aspect of the penetration, and this is kind of interesting to see, is we want to do that with side slip on the airplane as well. So we want to define the effects of ground effect with side slip on the airplane. So we do that exact same penetration maneuver, 200 feet per minute descent rate but we crank in some rudder trim so that now we've got several degrees of side slip on the airplane. So that's what's happening here. It just looks odd to come in and look out of the side window to see the runway. But again, this is the autopilot controlling the 200 feet per minute descent rate. It's just driving it through the ground effect, letting the elevator do what it needs to to keep that rate up regardless of what the ground effect is doing. So even less elegant on that landing because you're, you're landing sideways, but the airplane handles it fine. We do that uh, in some of our um, crosswind testing uh, regardless. Uh, but this gives you an idea of what we do with that data then. The intent is to find a series of, uh, do a series of passes at level altitude. That's what the red lines are here. Free air, that means up and away. We do that on downwind so that we're well out of ground effect. And that at a couple of lower altitudes, within one wingspan of the airplane at two more altitudes, we'll do a full range where we'll be fast at the beginning of the maneuver, so low angle of attack, and then decelerate all the way down the runway, which gets us the high angles of attack. Then those penetrations, we'll do those at your normal landing speed, 
and then we'll do them again a little bit fast, and then we'll do them again a little bit slower than a normal landing speed. So again, you get a range of angles of attack, but a constant angle of attack all the way down through landing, and that's what these, these blue lines are here. And then that information goes into changing basically your equations of motion for the, for the low altitude, for the touchdown, so that you can, the control effectiveness and the downwash on the tail, we have, we have ways of quantifying those impacts. So another couple of quick videos, just to, because we use this data, these, uh, this crosswind data in the next video I'll show, we do match our computer models with this. We do a proof of match with these, these kinds of tests. This happens to be at Keflavik, Iceland. They get those big weather patterns that move through in Keflavik. And if you're familiar with Keflavik, it's got two perpendicular runways. So on any given morning, you could have a headwind, a tailwind, a crosswind. You can be pretty productive in, in one day. And we do a, a lot of those landings. Um, we, we try different techniques of just keeping the airplane in a crab all the way down to the runway, never correcting for the crosswind, and sort of letting the airplane land sideways. The, the landing gear is structurally sound to allow that, that, so that's one technique. Another technique is to set up into a side slip, a wing low side slip, well out on the, and, and fly that all the way down. And another technique is to just wait till you get close to the runway and use a little rudder to kick it out, a little more dynamic. And, but we try those different techniques because we don't want to specify you have to land a certain way to, to the line crew, so we make sure the airplane handles properly regardless of the pilot technique. By the way, we do that too with an engine fail or with uh, the um, hydraulic pumps out or the nose gear steering disabled. We do a lot of testing it with failure modes. We probably spend more time testing the failure modes on the airplane than we do just the baseline airplane. So all of that testing you see, we have to certify the airplane can land in those crosswinds. It can do an auto land uh, with an engine failed or with hydraulic pumps out or a nose gear steering where it, it'll be harder to control your, your rollout on the runway once you land with a crosswind. So that's part of the testing that, that's being done even though the main testing looks like just a crosswind landing. Let's see, one last video that's, uh, that's interesting and it, it's uh, one we spend a lot of time thinking about before we go do it. It's the VMC, VMCG, to velocity for minimum control speed on the ground. Uh, this, and we have to define that number so that we can do our performance planning. So that, uh, I know many of you are familiar with it, but to put it in, in terms that, that I can relate to as I'm going down the runway, 70,000 pounds of thrust on both engines carrying me forward for the acceleration. One of those engines suddenly fails. So now you've got this 70,000 pounds of thrust way out there on that moment arm trying to drag the airplane off the runway. And the only thing you have to prevent that is the rudder on the vertical tail. We disable the nose gear steering, by the way, when we do these tests. We're simulating an icy runway so the nose gear steering isn't helping you stay on the runway. So you can envision that if you're going very fast when an engine fails, that rudder is much more effective and it will allow you to keep the nose steering down the runway and you can continue the takeoff. <clears throat> but when you're slower, there's not enough air flowing over that tail to give it much control authority. So when that engine is giving you that asymmetric thrust, full rudder does nothing for you. You, you will be going off the side of the runway and the only thing you can prevent, the only way to prevent that is by rejecting the takeoff, aborting that takeoff roll. So getting the, the thrust to idle because there's no way you'd be able to counteract that. So we have to know where that crossover speed is. At what speed below must you do a rejected takeoff, and then above that speed you have the option of continuing the takeoff and climbing out single engine. So that's the whole concept of this. It goes quicker than it takes to talk about it. Um, this happens to be uh, over at Moses Lake. Again, I think this may be at Edwards Air Force Base. The engine has failed. They're drifting right, full left rudder. Finally, they start converging back to the center line of the runway. And then you just, and then from there, we, we reject. So we start doing this maneuver first at a high speed, above our predicted minimum control speed, because that's where we know the airplane can be controlled. So we'll be fast, much faster than you, we would need to be. There, reject the, or, or fail an engine. And the airplane will drift, but maybe no more than five or 10 feet. As long as you're fast, you've got plenty of rudder power there. So then we'll change the speed of a few knots slower, fail an engine there. This time we may drift out to 20 feet before that's with full rudder trying to counteract and move us back to the center line. 
then we'll do it again maybe go down 10 knots and this time if we might go out 50 feet so we have to have at least a 30 foot deviation in that whole series of maneuvers so then we can draw a plot so if you fail the engine at this speed you'll deviate this much fail it at this speed you deviate this much and then the certification requirements are based on a 30 foot deviation so that's what we're trying to do is to draw a curve for all these different speeds and then what speed would would keep you within 30 feet of the center line or the runway so that's the whole point of that test and uh, we do those on wide runways at edwards air force base for instance uh, and to kind of close out a couple of things on the simulation you know we, we're we're taking data throughout the entire test program on everything that we do the wind-up turns the stalls side slips uh, operating the flaps putting up the speed brakes cycling the gear handle going to full thrust all those various things we have data on and then we develop after that I know many of you are familiar with this these, these proof of match documents so we do these there's thousands of these documents for all every for virtually every maneuver you can think of this happens to be a basic throttle uh, uh, push-up uh, sudden change in the thrust but you got to think 70,000 pounds of thrust going from idle to full thrust underneath the wing that's got an impact on the airplane now our airplane can handle that it will compensate for that thrust automatically other airplanes when that thrust that underslung thrust on the wing it's going to try to push the nose up and you might have to fight that a conventional airplane would fight that but anyway we do all that testing and generate these proof of match documents that some of those uh, technical parameters within the flight controls are fed back into the flight control system, back into the software to update our computer models, both for the simulator and for the, the flight controls that uh, the flight control computers and the logic that goes on there. This shows the, the inputs that are coming in. You may not be able to see this. What this is showing, there's a, a, a solid line and a dotted line. So the solid line is the real flight test data that we got from the airplane and the dotted line is how the simulator responded. So that's the proof of match, physically looking at all, during all these various maneuvers, how does the simulator compare with the, uh, the real airplane? So basically, as I just said, we do that throughout the program. Uh, although interesting, right now, the 787-9, we're completely done with all of the, the certification flight test all the testing we need to do to certify the airplane but even today we're flying dedicated flight tests for simulator data matching and um, it, these are long flights to go out and do a variety of maneuvers we, we call these flights the, the sim data uh, flights uh, the, the test pilot school short course because in one flight it seems like you do a little bit of everything you're doing these wind-up turns you're doing stalls you're doing high-speed maneuvers you're doing side slips uh, spiral stability Dutch roll you're checking out all those various features of the flight controls in the airplane response and then using that that's specific dedicated test just to generate those kinds of uh, those kind of plots that we use for the proof of match and so today we're doing right now the last few weeks we've been doing this dedicated sim data for the dash nine so that data will ultimately down the road it may take a year or two before we get all that uh, analyzed and published but that's what is then used to create the the level d simulators so early on our simulators as you're many of you where i know are an interim level c based on our flight test data then we get this much better more refined data at the end of the test program and then that continues on to give us our our level d simulator that's what one looks like i was just uh down at uh uh, Gatwick this week uh, Boeing at Boeing's training center we're getting the third 787 simulator down there certified at level D so that process is going on this week with YASA there this week FAA next week uh, to do that certification so it's a continual process we use to upgrade all these devices all these training devices so one final update on where we are now the 787 the dash 8 has been in service for about three years uh, operating with 18 different customers out there and then a handful of vip airplanes uh, uh, business jet type of things um, and all the we have four training centers around the world have quite a few simulators in them now and those are all being upgraded to level d uh, the dash 9 is finishing up with its testing the only thing left we had three flight test airplanes there and then two dedicated production airplanes where we do the ETOPS the, the, the long-range uh, single-engine divert you know we're certifying this airplane for diverting uh, an ETOPS diversion of 330 minutes so five and a half hours which means out over the Pacific uh, if you're 
have an engine failure, you could be, we have to show that you can safely travel then for another five and a half hours on a single engine to get to your divert base. So that's been uh, the final testing that we're doing. We still have that to go on the GE engine. The testing we've completed so far is for the Rolls-Royce engine. The GE is considered a separate test program and we're about to, about to complete that. So I've been real uh, uh, optimistic and gratified to see how well the Dash 9 has, has been going. Uh, it's a, been a very reliable airplane throughout the flight test program. So we'll start getting those into service this summer with uh, first Air New Zealand, then ANA, and uh, other customers after that. And I believe that's all I have to say. I just wanted to give you an update on what, what does flight test look like? What are some of the things that we do and uh, the, the handful of things that we looked at tonight were really things that I, I can relate easily in my mind that, that we use for flight, that we use for simulator updates and how that uh, data is directly affects the, the simulators and the, the proof of match that we do. Although we're, we're collecting that data for months on end for, in virtually everything that we do. So I hope that gave you a better idea of what, the, what we do in flight test. And uh, I appreciate all of your work in simulators <laughs> and getting those uh, to be as robust as they are today. To me, that's a whole technology in itself how it's amazing to me that that you can be certified to go fly the airplane and and never actually be in the airplane you know they're that that robust they're that realistic these days so that that says a lot about the technology anyway that's all i have i appreciate this opportunity and i'm available for answering questions with whatever time we have uh, have available if you have any From across the globe, from the center of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favorite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www.aerosociety.com. This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.